0: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here, and today we're talking with Patrick Lopez Aguado about his book, Stick Together and Come Back Home, Racial Sorting in the- Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here, and today we're talking with Patrick Lopez Aguado about his book, Stick Together and Come Back Home racial sorting, and the spillover of carceral identity. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell us about yourself?
1: I'm an assistant professor at Santa Clara University. I'm in the sociology department. I specialize in uh, criminology and criminal justice, and and, and particularly um, interested in some of the questions about mass incarceration, but also what have been some of the consequences of that, and, and particularly... In terms of you know some of the issues I explore in the book thinking about how this has questions of of socialization of cultural identity in some of the communities that are that have been most impacted by imprisonment
0: so how did this book come about for you so the book
1: came about some of the origins of it were in previous research that I was doing you know as a young graduate student uh, working on my master's degree and you know at the time I was working on a project where I was shadowing gang intervention workers down in LA, and you know, in, in the course of doing that project, it was interesting that a number of you know the conflicts that they would try to intervene in or that they would try to um, kind of calm folks down about, particularly as they crossed racial lines between black and brown communities. Every time these conflicts came up, they they would always have the same response, like, "Oh, that's." That's all stuff coming out of the jails. Oh, that's all coming out of the prisons, and that was something that I thought was really interesting, but I couldn't really find much written about it. Uh, you know, whether it be sort of journalistic accounts or research done on it. And as I continued doing work, research on other projects, I would continually come into contact with young folks who, you know, identified with gangs in their neighborhood and would sort of speak to, you know, this, this common realization that. Well, you know, if we get locked up, things are different in there. We have to kind of get along with our enemies, and up there we're going to be fighting people from Northern California. And and so I was really interested in what were those dynamics that they were talking about, and also like how did they know all this, right? How was it that you know these like thirteen, fourteen-year-old kids had this really kind of vivid picture in mind about what what was happening in th- these penal settings that were you know, miles away. And if it was one that they encountered would be years down the road. So I wanted to research this. I wanted to figure out what exactly were those connections? What were the system that they were kind of imagining? Right. How was this related to some of the things I already knew about prisons being really kind of racially divided? But I also very much wanted to base this work in the Central Valley and in Fresno for, for a few reasons. One, thinking about Fresno as you know, in my own bias certainly, but but as a really kind of fascinating um, site of sociological inquiry in California that's usually overshadowed by work coming out of LA or the Bay Area. But also in particular for what I was interested in doing here, I thought it would be kind of an ideal a research site because I also knew that in thinking about some of the divisions between Latino communities, um, Norteño and Sureño communities, being divided by north and south in the state, Fresno was really kind of in the middle of that. It was this kind of borderlands community. And in that context, I knew having family in Fresno that they had their own kind of um, Cult, their own kind of subculture their own kind of uh, uh, identity that was that had kind of growing between north and south in the case of the Fresno Bulldogs and so I thought it might give me a really good chance to see this happening in, in a way where I could make some really clear connections between the institution and some of the local settings and really get a chance to investigate how is it that these identities the cultures behind them the histories or the narratives of those histories are Kind of being told and passed down.
0: In the book, you use three settings, so you have a juvenile detention facility, an educational academy, and a job placement center. So I was hoping that you could sort of set the stage for your book with these places that you used.
1: Uh, so what I wanted to do in the research was to again think about what are these connections in place between penal institution and community? And so I tried to think about what are some of the sites that kind of connect these two places and also what, what connects them across generations. So thinking about this kind of life trajectory of residents in Fresno who are criminalized and kept really kind of within the grasp of the criminal justice system through many years of their lives. And so I, I focus the book in in these three places. I, in order to get the experiences of parolees as they're describing what uh, prison was like for them and what this particular kind of what I refer to as this carceral social order, how they experienced it in prison settings. I interviewed uh, parolees um, at the uh, at the job training center. It's essentially a prisoner kind of reentry center. It was a place that recent parolees were oftentimes referred to in order to access um, forms of job training. You know, it had like a computer lab where they could work on their resumes or search for local jobs. And in particular, I, I would come on Friday mornings when they would have a kind of a support group that would meet every week. And parolees who were, you know, on parole together would come in, kind of share their experiences, and, and offer, you know, forms of moral support. And so, you know, I would come to these meetings, I would kind of explain what I was doing and ask if anyone was interested in sharing their stories to meet with me afterwards. And yeah, sure enough, each week I would get two or three folks who were, were interested in, in kind of contributing their, their experiences. The other sites were both juvenile justice sites. So the juvenile hall which is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's the county's juven, you know, juvenile hall facility. The other is a continuation high school. And so the relationship to that is as kids were released from juvenile hall, on their probation, they were referred to the continuation high school. And so attending there was a condition of their probation. So this became part of, in Fresno, kind of the local institutions that defined Fresno's school-to-prison pipeline, right? It became the uh, uh, juvenile justice infrastructure that local youth had a really difficult time breaking out of in that once they got in trouble, usually in their public school, they were sent to juvenile hall. And even if they weren't detained there, right, if they were booked there, they were placed on probation, they then usually had to go into the continuation school. And for them, from then on, for a lot of those kids, they it wound up being a series of kind of bouncing back and forth between these two places. And so it was as they were bouncing between these two places that they became further institutionalized into the social order and into the different categories that were uh, kind of enforced in both places. And, uh, you know, so it was looking at these at these three sites that I was trying to make a comparison between how, how are these identities, how is the social order something that's being institutionalized both in the prison, but how is, does that also relate to the socialization happening uh, in juvenile justice settings?
0: So you've got these three places that you used, but I was hoping that you could sort of talk about other parts of your method. So for instance, you know, you say that one of your students actually initially suspected that you might work with law enforcement. Um, so I was hoping you could talk more about your place and your experience as a researcher.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so interviews with the, you know, at the job training center, the interviews there, you know, like I said, were pretty straightforward in terms of going to these meetings, recruiting anyone who's interested in participating. And I didn't get necessarily any kind of suspicions there. I think, you know, I think if anything, a lot of the parolees described, described their interviews as really kind of cathartic experiences where they didn't really get a chance to kind of tell these stories. You know, they were things that they either felt that people weren't particularly interested or sympathetic to or things that they felt like they couldn't really share with, you know, their families in terms of, of kind of describing what day to day life was like while they were incarcerated. So for a, a number of them, it was, you know, at least in terms of how they described it af- immediately afterwards, it was something that I think a lot of them were kind of happy they they had a chance to do with the youth, uh in, in the school, yeah, there were there, there was some kind of initial suspicions. And so because of that, um, I kind of delayed interviewing them for a couple months actually. So I started volunteering at the school, and I started volunteering at the at the juvenile hall at more or less the same time. And so I would go there and basically volu- at the school, I was volunteering as as a kind of tutor. And in that capacity, I could, you know, I was often asked to pull students out of class if they were being disruptive. And so I think from the school, the school standpoint, they saw this as something that could perhaps prevent the student in question from really getting into trouble. It could prevent a confrontation with a teacher from escalating to the point where, you know, they the student had to be suspended or arrested or, or what have you. And so I was that kind of I think they saw me as that kind of release valve, right? Um, and so I started pulling kids out of class as, you know, first by sort of reference, like, can you go get so-and-so? But after a while, students would request that I come get them. You know, I think at first they they liked getting out of class, basically. And And when I pulled them out, I would still work with them, you know, with whatever their assignments were for that day. But I think out of the classroom you know, it was more either one-on-one or small groups. They usually finished the assignments pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. and then from there, I think they, you know, perhaps enjoyed having a little more freedom outside of the classroom. And so I did that for some time. And, you know, simultaneously, I'm volunteering at the juvenile hall, working out of, um, kind of like a recreation room that they had there. Mm-hmm. So they brought me in as a, to facilitate um you know i think what was like a violence prevention program but the programming itself was fairly light so it wound up being more just kind of socializing them with them more than anything but after a while because like i said kids or the youth would would kind of go from one institution to the other so they would kind of recognize me across different spaces and they like oh i see you were over at the juvie i didn't know you work here too or you know, vice versa. And so I think the more that happened, it gave me more of an opportunity to kind of explain what I was doing with the project and develop more of a rapport with them. And so I think as more of them got to know me, they were more willing to share their experiences and, and also vouch for me for, with their friends who were a little more cautious, a little more suspicious. You know, there were some students who, even though I got to know them, they didn't weren't all that comfortable being recorded in interviews. And so I didn't, you know, if they didn't want to do it, I I didn't press them on it, obviously. But, but yeah, that was an initial kind of suspicion that I kind of had to <laughs> work my way through a little bit. Yeah.
0: So chapter one, you start with a story of Javier, who shares that his fear of incarceration would actually strengthen the role that gangs played in his life. Um, and you mentioned that when they come into the system, they're actually sorted by their race, home community, and peer peer networks. So I was hoping that you could sort of talk more about each one of those. Yeah.
1: And so this was, um, I think perhaps the, the, you know, the clearest connection I could see between the two was in researching what I knew already, or what I had read somewhat about racial divisions, and it turns out racial segregation inside the state prisons, it became something that really kind of stood out to me right away coming into uh, some of the juvenile facilities too and so in chapter one I, I kind of lay out how the process works in both in both places um, so in talking with the parolees what I essentially was able to to gather through so many, so many of their stories was this process where uh, once they were transferred from a county jail, they were sent to sent into the custody of, of the uh, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. But when they're first transferred, they go into um, what's known as a reception facility. And there they go through this process of uh, what they refer to as sorting. And so in when they're going through sorting, they're kind of kept with a number of other, basically everyone else who's coming in at the same time. And and so it's a little bit of a chaotic experience for a lot of them. You know, there's a lot of people passing through, a lot of turnover, but essentially what's happening is they are being, you know, kind of introduced into the state system uh, or reintroduced for, for many of them. Uh, but they have their information updated, right? They're, they're searched, they're inspected, uh, they're photographed oftentimes, Um, but a, a, a number of, of information is, is kind of gathered on them. And, and the point of this is to determine what their housing assignment is going to be. Right. So where specifically in the prison system out of its 30 some odd facilities, where are they actually going to do their sentence? And so a number of factors are taken into account. Right. So the crime that they're convicted of, whether they recognize this, you know, essentially minimum or maximum security, their history of violence potential gang affiliations, um, medical needs, perhaps. But one that everyone goes through is they're also racially categorized. And it's through this process that they're, depending on how they're categorized, they are housed with someone who's categorized the same way. And what's interesting in this process is you have a number of racial identities, racial or ethnic identities, that are all collapsed into basically like four right? So um, inmates are are regarded as being either white, black, uh, Hispanic, or other, right? Other becoming this kind of catch-all category for anyone who's not one of the previous three. But even within uh, Latino or Hispanic uh, uh, folks, they're also divided by uh, where in the state they're from. So whether they're from Northern California, they're sorted as Northerners or Norteños, Southerners or Sureños. And then Uh, these folks from Fresno or from Fresno County and some of the surrounding regions in central California are separated as this kind of third group as Fresno bulldogs. Now, initially from, from what I can tell initially, the reason for the system doing this uh, was to try to combat basically escalating institutional violence between, um, between prison gangs. Right. But in, the thought being that, well, we'll just keep them separated. That'll sort of limit their ability to fight. But the the institution itself doesn't really know who is actually in these prison gangs. Prison gangs themselves are fairly small, right? They're not huge organizations. Um, And especially in comparison with how many many people are actually imprisoned in the state of California. Uh, So it winds up being a, a solution of sorts that, separates everyone, right? Treats everyone as potentially involved or potentially associated with one of these groups and with the violence between them. So you then have what winds up coming to, I think, six groups, six or seven, depending on the facility, where you not only have folks racially segregated, but you also have this sort of curious system in which being a Latino from Northern California is treated as kind of a distinct racial group from being from Southern California. And so I, I, I lay that process, the process by which, you know, folks are kind of sent through this uh, in, in chapter one. And then immediately after, I walk the reader through how you have a similar process happening in the juvenile system. All right So as young people are, are sent to booking in juvenile hall, they have a similar kind of sorting experience, right? Where they're interviewed, they have this information collected about them. Um, and depending on, again, their race, uh, their geography, right? Not necessarily where in the state they're from, but where in, in town or where in the county they're from. Um, and if they know other individuals who are already there or who have already been processed and are, are kind of marked in this, have juvenile records there basically, Uh, Depending on these three factors, they get sorted into what are almost exactly the same categories. And depending on how they're categorized, they're similarly separated inside the juvie, right? So you have then the Norteño uh, youth all in one pod, all on one side of the pod. Soreño's on the other side, Bulldog's on another side. Uh, You have uh, black youth kept together. You have white kids kept together. And so these are records that are then passed on to the continuation school. But if by chance they haven't been categorized in the same way, they go through this sorting or orientation process again at the high school. So as youth are transferred, their first day at school, they come in, they're interviewed by staff, and they're asked pretty straightforwardly, like, are are you gang affiliated? Most kids say no, um, which coincides with, Research we know that uh, you know indeed most youth are not gang-affiliated, even most criminalized youth are not gang-involved. But the institution itself is still based very much around the assumption that most or all of the kids coming in here are, right? mm-hmm. and separates them as such. And so, again, you have the same criteria being used. So depending on students' racial identity, depending on where in town they're from, and depending on if they know any of the other students there— they are then categorized in school files. Uh, they're recommended to go to kind of their respective corner of a divided blacktop, you know, not, not unlike at how we might imagine a yard being divided in, in, a, in, a, in a correctional facility. And while, during lunchtime, during recess breaks, during any time that they're not in class, they're more or less expected to stay in that corner. Right. If they venture beyond that, they're told to get back to that table. And so the longer that they stay there, the more days and weeks pass and they remain stationed at their kind of assigned table, the more entrenched those labels become. Right. And so these again, they go into their juvenile records. They often become evidence used for uh, gang validation. Right. That then in itself becomes justification for um, maintaining surveillance on them, enhancing punishments. um, If they get into a fight with another student, it's not just an individual disagreement or a fight like we might consider any other fight. It's a gang fight, right? Which in in itself entails additional punishment. So I think, you know, that's most of much of the focus in in chapter one is really kind of laying out the parallels between uh, what's happening at institutions at these two levels.
0: Yeah. So this really ties well into your second chapter where you start to talk about uh, being in these cliques as a form of survival. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. What I wanted to do
1: with this is recognizing this as an institutional uh, structure or process that youth are pushed into. I wanted to think about how is it that students involved actually understand it, right? So how do they make sense of it? And what does this mean in terms of, you know, how they how they experience it, how they go into uh, the school itself, um, or, or the juvie, but also uh, how, how they kind of make sense of it, right? In uh, Sorry, I think there's like a fire alarm going off. Here. <laughs> so if, you, if you hear the beeping, I apologize. So a number of the young people I talked to understood the institutions that they were going into as already divided spaces, right? And so they understood it as, as context where there's already these, these conflicts in, in place, right? There's these divisions in place. And because that's there, and because it's it's institutionalized and structured in this really clear way, um, it's not really easy to exist outside of that system, it's, right? It's, it's very, there is this very common perception, and, and probably really accurate, that it's very difficult to be there as an individual, right? To be there kind of on your own. And I think this was a, a shared understanding of folks both going into prison and going into some of these juvenile settings for the first time. So similar as uh, some of the parolees described the first time they went to prison, right, they were understandably intimidated about the the context that they were stepping into. You also had some of the the teenagers, right, the students uh, describe the first time they went to juvie or the first time they came to this high school, having heard stories about Oh, it's all gang members there. Oh, there's fights there every day. Oh, this and that. So they go in sort of expecting it to be this really challenging place and a place that's really dangerous. And so because of that, the system that categorizes them in this way, they quickly learn to understand this as something that's in their best interests, Right. And so they don't necessarily see it as them being pitted against each other as You know, I I think as an outsider kind of stood out to me, Um, but as you know, a a fifteen year old kid stepping into the school and trying, you know, not to get beat up uh, or not to get jumped, you know, they understood it as well. I'm coming in. They're sort of saying that I'm, say, a bulldog. I don't really bang, but you know, my cousin is 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 here already, so I'm gonna hang out with my cousin, and you know, the the kid I went to junior high with is here too, so I know some people over in this corner, and. You know, I think it's probably in my best interest to kind of stay around them, right? So that if someone else tries to pick on me, confront me, bully me, I'll at least they'll have—I know they'll have my back, right? And so this becomes the understanding for you know this this clicking up process, right? Is in order to access support, you learn to kind of go along with the system that's being socialized there, and so it it begins to shape how both how the youth in the school but also how how some of the older you know parolees were describing the socialization process in you know in the prison it begins to shape how they see how they learn to identify themselves how they think about themselves individually but also as part of a collective right and so how they who they learn to recognize as kind of my people's right and consequently who they learn to recognize as others and so they learned to identify with, with these groups. Uh, in, in prison, they refer to them as, as the car, right? They, they learned to identify with the appropriate car. They didn't use the same kind of terminology in the juvenile settings. Um, you know, they would really just kind of talk about it as uh, their friends or sometimes just uh, tables, right? Because we're talking about kind of lunch tables on a, on a blacktop. But they learned to identify with one group as opposed to others. Um, and as part of that, they also learn to understand different things about themselves, both in terms of uh, and some of the ones I, I highlight is they learn to think differently about uh, gang identities. If they are if they did, in fact, already identify with the local kind of neighborhood gang, it shifted how they understood race, but also how they how many of them regarded uh, their own gender identities. Right. So how and, and particularly in, in uh, the school, which was about 90 percent boys. Uh, how these boys learn to conceptualize masculinity, right, and, and to understand masculinity as being part of this group, as opposed to being either rejected from it or or someone who is sort of unfit to to be part of that group.
0: Yeah, I really liked that part where you talk about the construction of race and gender in their space um, and interactions with each other.
1: You know, as, as you might imagine, and I think it's probably the case with any kind of segregated system. It relies on this idea of very static racial categories, right? And so there's not really any recognition of, you know, anything outside of this very narrow range. You're either black, white, or Latino, um, or or perhaps, you know, in the prison, other. And it was really weird talking to parolees who would kind of talk about themselves as others, right, who would sort of take on this term. So there, there's no sort of recognition of being anything outside of that or or anything between that, right? So if you're mixed, you have to pick one or the other, which is also something I get into in the next chapter a little bit. So they understand racial categories as being really mutually exclusive. And one of the ways I thought that was interesting and, and also in terms of um, racializing an identity, such as being a bulldog or being a North Daniel, um, you know, this idea that you couldn't be a, a white bulldog right so I, I think one of the stories i have in there uh is about uh, um you know a, a white student who comes and, and sits with the other white kids but talks about being a bulldog and then the white students are understanding like if you're a bulldog why are you sitting here this is the student this is the table for white kids um and, and so sort of seeing him as someone who doesn't understand how the system works and because of that they don't really take him seriously right he doesn't understand kind of the you know the, the rules of this place. As for gender, because the separation between uh, the groups is based on you know this sort of fear or anticipation of violence between them, this is a message that's constantly reiterated by uh, by staff by the security personnel, where um, it it becomes the reason for separating them, right? And so this becomes a message that kind of seeps into the minds and the consciousness of uh, of the youth who are there. And I think similarly in the prison, right, if you're kept away from another group long enough, and you're told that this is something that's necessary for your own safety, you begin to get kind of leery about who, who is that other group, right? Who are those people over there? Why do they keep looking over here. So you had suspicions about, you know, who, who were the kids across the blacktop. And so they would have, uh, you know, they would come into contact with each other, certainly, but this was always, um, you know sort of expected to be confrontational. and And so, in so many of those interactions, you had teenage boys who were kind of puffing themselves up and 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 kind of trying to uh, present themselves as, you know, I'm not the one you want to mess with. And so this became part of what many of the boys here understood as being kind of rewarded or or uh, admired as a, a, um, you know, an admirable form of masculinity. And so being part of, you know, being a respected bulldog and being seen as sufficiently masculine, these came to be kind of intertwined ideas, right? Where the idea where as, say, as a bulldog, you were were expected to be able to manage confrontations that might come your way to defend your group's space uh, and, and to defend yourself and your friends, Right? If someone else was threatening you. Right. And as many of these interactions were interpreted as threats. Uh, so the ability to do that was seen not only as you know, being being a good bulldog, I suppose, but also being masculine. Right. And especially among teenage boys who are constantly kind of competing with each other. Uh, in in this kind of ranking of masculinities, you know, and and so antithetical to that was someone who was unable to fight or unwilling to fight, um, and so the fear of of seeming like someone who would back down from a challenge was the, the the fear of being labeled and recognized by your peers around you as as a bitch, and this was the you know the term that the general used. This and and you know it became a term to to challenge one another's masculinity uh, to uh, remind each other that they shouldn't back down from fights. So if there was you know rumor about a potential fight going around and you know in general students young people don't want to fight right <laughs> uh, even even if they're trying to you know put up a uh, this facade and put up you know they're upset about whatever and they want people to respect them nine times out of ten. You could kind of sense, you know, the students involved didn't want to actually go through with it. You know, they didn't want to get punched. They didn't want to risk getting hurt. But it, if there was any indication that, you know, a student was trying to back out of it, like, well, I'm not going to wait around for him or if he wants to fight, he can come fight me. Um, you know, friends around them would say would remind them, hey, don't be a bitch. Go go handle it. Right. Don't don't avoid this. Um, so it became this this kind of policing of masculinity that very much coincided with conforming to and embodying the expectations of you as you know a bulldog or as a Northano. Um So yeah, it, it shaped a lot of these uh, uh, self perceptions, right? In terms of aspects of one's own identity in ways that then kind of fits into this uh, system that's being institutionalized in the school or in the prison.
0: So then you get a little bit more into how space and style matter in these institutions. And for instance, you talk about how Diego doesn't dress like everybody else. And so I was hoping you could talk more about space and style.
1: Yeah, so space and style in in, in chapter three, I try the first half of chapter three, you know, after thinking about how this process builds identity, I was also interested in how is that identity performed or how is that kind of communicated to others, right? And, And recognizing this importance in... Getting into some of the categories that are being institutionalized there, you know, the fear of not of, of not only not being in one of those categories, but being seen as kind of an outsider from those categories. How do youth, or how do the students here, indicate to others who they're affiliated with or who they associate with? And so, space became a big one in in, in prison context. Auroleys describe this in terms of understanding what they refer to as the politics of their institution. And so a lot of the politics had to do with what could sometimes be really intricate sets of rules, right, in terms of what you were allowed to do, what you weren't allowed to do, and who you were allowed to to do it with. And so depending on the car you were in, these rules changed in terms of who you got along with who you didn't get along with. But also a, a big part of those rules was how space was divided. And so you have... In a, in a setting that's overcrowded, right, that's confined, you had what were socialized and what were passed down as really, you know, like I said, really intricate rules and understandings about which space is ours and which space is yours. Um, and so, you know, out, once one left one's own cell and, and was going into what were shared spaces, right, a yard, uh place to go eat uh, uh, one's meals, there was an understanding about where people, you know, any common areas, an understanding of where your group could be and where your group couldn't be. Um, In in spaces where it was too small to kind of divide it in this way, this would even uh, work out into into kind of timed schedules, right? So if the space wasn't big enough for all these groups to be there at the same time, You, your group had kind of a time slot that you could go. So this, this division of space became really important. Um, at the school, this happened more around um, the blacktop and tables, how tables were divided and who was sort of allowed at different tables. And so a number of fights then, or a number of confrontations came, you know, resulted if a student from another group came too close to or tried to to sit at your group's table, that was interpreted as a threat, right? And I think contextualized into how the separation of groups is always explained to uh, people in the institution, that shapes how those those spatial transgressions were interpreted, right? So if anyone came too close to you, it was seen, the the immediate assumption was that they're trying to hurt you, right? They're trying to, run up on you or fight you or, or jump you. And another, w- another way that this happened was through style. And so the style was a little trickier and it, you know, in, in the prison was fairly limited. I mean, outside of having, uh, uh, you know, specific tattoos or maybe, you know, you know, hair to an extent could be used to do this. But at the school, it, it became something a little bit more visible and at the school it was still limited because there was a pretty strict dress code in place that really tried to limit this but youth are infinitely creative and will find ways around it and and so one of the interesting things uh, that happened i think was that based on how you've kind of presented themselves aesthetically other students right their peers would would take that as as a way of interpreting how they identified or or how they affiliated themselves or who they associated with. Right. So it became a way of categorizing other people. And so this happened in in a number of interesting ways where, and and I'll get to the example of of Diego in a minute, but this could sometimes even transgress some of the racial categories. Right. So for example, if um, I remember one student explaining to me that, you know, they sort of expect this racial division to happen. They know, they understand. If a new black student comes, they're going to go sit with the black kids. Uh, new me, uh, white student comes in, they're going to go sit with the white kids. Uh, but he also explains this this example of, you know, the the I, I think he describes it as a Mexican kid who thinks he's white, right? And so I push him a little bit on it, like, well, what does that mean? How can you tell that they think they're white? He's like, well, you know, if they come in, kind of dressed like a skater or something. And they saw this as in line with how white kids dress. And based on, you know, if your shirt was not as oversized as the rest of the Chicano boys there, um, your jeans were a little skinnier. Uh, you didn't have the same sneakers. You, you, you weren't, your shirt wasn't sort of ironed or or kept as as sort of immaculately clean as possible, right? It had brand names on it. That became an indication of, you know, perhaps your class status, right? That you grew up on the north side as opposed to South Fresno, like most of the boys there did. Um, But that also perhaps how you identified culturally, right? Perhaps you uh, had more in common with some of the white kids who were here as opposed to um, so many of, of, of the Chicano boys who grew up, Kind of near each other and and saw themselves as, as distinct from that so you it was interesting to watch kids who came in and didn't necessarily uh, uh dress in a way that, that kind of conformed with uh you know some of the other students there how that might you know so the latino boy who comes dressed as a skater was perhaps expected to go sit with the white kids and if he came and sat with the Latino kids, you you saw their aesthetics change over time, and and some of the boys described this too. Where, uh, you know, when I came here, I dressed in, um, you know, I, I had tore up jeans and my sneakers were all messy, and I, you know, I wore skater, sh- uh, shirts, and my hair was grown out all along. But, you know, over time, I realized like this you know, I've got to grow out of this, and so I change my look. And not coincidentally, they change their look to look like all the other boys around them, right? <laughs> so it becomes the socialization of, uh, of of a particular look that then indicates who they're aligning with, who they identify with. Now, the, with Diego, we have an interesting example because uh, Diego comes in and immediately stands out uh, because he he comes dressed in what we could perhaps think of not only th- this kind of Cholo aesthetic, but even kind of a dated Cholo aesthetic. So he comes in uh, with, and, and I, I sort of explain the distinctions in terms of, you know, understanding how most of the boys here dress, I'm sorry, most of the Latino boys here come in solid color t-shirts, generally wore like 501 jeans, would roll up the bottoms, would have Chuck sneakers, uh, um converse sneakers and uh, um you know we usually have kind of like a fade haircut diego comes in baggy jeans but worn up high right brought up high you know past his belly button uh has dress shoes on has a uh a a checkered um button-down shirt and he's wearing a rosary around his neck and so this immediately stands out to every other student there. It catches their attention. And uh, they're, they're even kind of like laughing about it. Like, man, this guy really got dressed up today. Like, he's, he came ready. <laughs> and, and I make the point that, you know, this kind of sets him up to be ostracized by a number of the other, uh, uh, particularly the Bulldog students there, right? Because they recognize this as an aesthetic heavily associated with a... Cholo culture that's seen as kind of coming from L.A., like right out of East L.A. And so in dressing this way, it becomes a really powerful way of identifying oneself as a southerner, right, as a sureño in the school where it's it's overwhelmingly dominated by Bulldogs and norteños, right? So it becomes a way of standing out, of standing out in a way that's very oppositional, but that is done, you know, really intentionally, right? It's not an accident that he comes dressed this way. Um and it's it's done for a number of reasons. A to kind of instantly set himself apart from other youth there who he already knows aren't going to you know, they're not gonna be his friends, right? They're they're going to be uh rivals for him. And so it becomes a way of kind of establishing that distance, you know, immediately. Um, but it also becomes a way of signaling to anyone else there who's perhaps a southerner also, you know, it's a, it's a way of finding them immediately, right? So it becomes a, a symbol that everyone is going to see and anyone who's friendly towards that symbol, it, it then lets him know like, all right, these are the people I need to come and be with, right? These are the people who are going to support me, right? So you're finding the handful of supporters in a crowd of people who generally aren't going to like you.
0: So then in chapter four, you start with this really powerful story from Henry, who spent two years inside and noticed that it really changed him. And you share this really powerful statement from him where he says you adapt to it if you're a survivor. Um, And so you start to talk about how the affiliations inside continue to follow them outside the institutions and really struggle to shed them after they've left. So I was hoping you could talk more about that.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So chapter four starts the second half of the book, and and the second half is where I really start trying to investigate these connections between prison and community and thinking about this beyond the institution, right? How can we think about what are the consequences of uh, institutionalizing the system, right? How does this actually affect neighborhoods? And so the story with Henry, we have someone who grew up just outside of Fresno, in and out of Fresno, but but mainly just outside of Fresno in the uh, in the 90s and gets into trouble. And like so many other young people at that time, gets sent to uh, California Youth Authority. So Youth Authority is a system that has since changed its name to like the Department of Juvenile Justice, right? Um, and it has been heavily reduced, right? The state is basically trying to get a, get rid of this this youth prison system. In the 90s, though, it's in its heyday, and its, it's, you ha- its institutions are at its most crowded. Um, you have youth being sent there uh, more so than any other point in its history. And so Henry uh, goes to one of these facilities, and when he gets there, it's crowded, it's chaotic, it's violent. Um, it's, 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 it's dangerous. And, you know, we have all kinds of horror stories that came out of YA and it's a big part of why the state has, has gone as far as it has to try to get rid of it. And so it's in that setting that he describes, yeah, this need to adapt, right? This need to, uh, be a survivor. And part of how he learns to do that is through this clicking up, right? Is through, uh, building these relationships with others who are also coming from Fresno or Fresno County, Right, and he says it's the only way we're going to get through this is if we all stick together. And it, it's actually from him where we get the title of the book, right? That's all we want to do. We just want to stick together and come back home. That's all we care about. And so he he learns to to do that, right? He learns to uh, position himself in this system. But in his time there, it's also this moment where you you have Fre- the Fresno Bulldogs first kind of emerging as a as this kind of breakaway group for incarcerated latinos right so it's while he's in youth authority that folks who are being sent into the state systems from fresno and from central california begin breaking away from the northerners um and what i think is really interesting in henry's example is how while at youth authority he learns about these fights that are happening in the state prison um so he describes sort of friends around him who are getting Letters from relatives who are in different uh, adult prisons, right? And they learn to kind of identify with that same, you know, movement, if we can call it that. Um, and, and so it becomes part of this process where. What happens in the prison we can see the consequences of that in other institutions and eventually when when Henry gets back home he sees it's happened there too so when he first gets locked up he describes the neighborhood that he came from he says yeah all the guys there um, all, all my friends there we all saw ourselves as northerners when I came back we were all bulldogs um, and so I, I I like using that story to to kind of introduce you know this this um, this line of things Thinking about how can we trace that influence, right? How extensively is that influence of the prison uh, in terms of day-to-day life in criminalized communities?
0: Continuing to think um, outside of the institutions, you then look at the exposure to violence, both inside but also outside, back in their neighborhoods. So I was hoping you could talk more about this connection between the institution and neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the key things that that stood out to me and um, that so many of the people I talked to uh, uh, highlighted was just as these same identities were coming out of the prison, so were the conflicts between them. And so in Chapter five, I, I look a little more closely at how, you know, how how does that work? How does how does the carceral social order that's socialized here how does it actually structure experiences with violence? And so I look at some of the ways where, in some cases, it, interestingly enough, uh, uh, kind of restricts violence across, say, racial lines, where, and particularly, I think, in the prison, where um, parolees described being really reluctant or really hesitant to, um, you know, get into arguments or to get into fights or to let fights escalate with someone who was outside of their car because they understood it as something that if I get into it with, with this guy, that's going to drag everyone else in. Um, you know, they described it as as you, you're creating a wreck for the car, right? You're, you're dragging everyone else into your mess. Um, and you not only are you putting other people in danger doing that, but they're also going to hold you accountable for that too. So this became something that parolees kind of knew to avoid, but it could also create situations in which violence was expected, right? And so uh, particularly in instances where one was managing threats, managing confrontations, or defending space, right? So because another group coming into your space was deemed you know, a, a threat or, or was recognized as that, uh, the expectation was to confront that violently. And so this could happen sometimes. In the prison, this was how so many of the students at the school understood it too. And it also created a system in which folks uh, learned to use violence to get themselves positioned how they wanted. So, if you know, in talking with parolees, for example, describing being if they were transferred to a new facility and they were put into you know a a yard or, or a cell block where they saw themselves as vastly outnumbered uh it became a kind of strategy where I'm gonna pick a fight with somebody. Uh that'll get me held into solitary, or at least for the time being, it'll remove me from this place where I feel threatened. And then when they release me from 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 that segregation uh or from ADSEG, they're going to reclassify me and put me somewhere where I'm not, you know, I'll be with my peoples again. Right. So it became a way of themselves enforcing this same social order. Um but in the process, kind of reifying the perceived need, like, oh, this is why we need to keep these groups separated in the first place, because they're going to fight. It was because they learned to manage that system by kind of recreating this need for the system in the first place. And so some of the ways where this spills out into the community has to do with uh, uh, some of the key connections that I highlight in the book. So um, some of the main connections between prison and community is, uh, A, thinking about Incarceration is something concentrated, right? So because you have specific neighborhoods targeted for imprisonment, you then have communities in which a lot of people from that community either have been or are in prison. And and so because of that, you have a lot of relationships in that community or a lot of people in those communities that have relationships with those who are incarcerated. So they become impacted by whatever their incarcerated loved ones are going through while they're away in prison. But it's also connected through this kind of uh, institutional reproduction, right? So because these same conflicts are recreated at the juvenile justice level, it be- they become kind of local manifestations of those same state divisions. And so these wind up spilling outside of the community, um, either as personal conflicts um, you know, are brought back home, um, as uh, uh, those same subcultures and identities appear back in communities, they bring with them the fights between them. So, for example, one of the uh, uh, stories I tell is uh, Perley I talked to who grew up in in Corcoran, right, in the town of Corcoran. And so the way he makes sense of it is that growing up, we were all right, we were always a Norteño town. You know, uh, my family, all my friends, the folks in my neighborhood, we were all northerners. They built the prison, and once they built the prison, you had a lot of southerners who got locked up here. Their families came up, so they brought— Sureños with them. And so he understood it in terms of, you know, when I got locked up, they actually kept him in the prison in Corcoran. He fought, he he was a part of those fights between Norteños and Sureños there. But then even once he was released, right, just the other side of the wall, he saw the same fights happening, right? Um, and saw it in terms of, and it was interesting because he said before the prison happened, you had a hand, you had, I think he identifies three Norteño neighborhoods in the town and they generally kind of fought amongst each other. Once Sureños came to town, they don't necessarily like like these pre-Norteño neighborhoods. They don't necessarily like each other, but they prioritize fighting the Sureños that come in, right? So it establishes this new sort of structure for violence that that happens. And it, it also structures threats of violence that young people who aren't involved in gangs have to navigate too. Uh, so in talking with some of the uh, um, some of the youth uh, who weren't getting involved, who were taggers, basically, right? Young graffiti artists that some of the stories they had were learning how to navigate Norteños, Sureños and Bulldogs, right? Who were all sort of at conflict with each other, but were all present in their neighborhood. Right. And so they learned how to dress in ways that's not going to be seen as as. You know they're an enemy to any of these groups or to one of these groups. Um, they learn how to talk to, uh, you know, the group of bulldogs on the corner that kind of challenges them. Uh, they learn to kind of be wary of uh, these different affiliations at work locally, and to do so in ways where they're they're learning to kind of protect themselves and navigate, you know, what, what is a potentially
0: dangerous space. So in chapter six, you move into talking about sort of their everyday lives, and here. Um, what I thought was really interesting is that uh, you use a quote from a nonprofit administrator, and they really kind of emphasize that they're not just kids. You, she says, you know, they you forget that they're dangerous. Um, and you say that this really stuck with you. Um, and something else that really stuck with me from this chapter is that how these youth, um, their everyday activities become viewed negatively, right? So, for instance, creativity is seen as criminally suspicious. So, for instance, like tagging. Um, is seen as suspicious. So I was hoping you could talk more about how these everyday activities are seen as criminal.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so this kind of ties in with one of the last forms of violence I talk about in chapter five was that another form of violence that they had to be conscious of was uh, police violence, right? Because one of the main consequences of this spillover of, of carceral identity uh, was that it became a system for labeling local youth. And so some of the first experiences with violence that a number of the young people I talked to had were as sometimes very young children being confronted by police officers, right, with guns drawn, right, with being uh, manhandled or or, or uh, uh, slammed onto the hoods of cars or, you know, a number of different ways that this, this violence... Uh, uh, unfolds. And so this became, you know, an additional threat that they had to contend with in large part because so much of the consequence of the system being institutionalized and imprisonment being concentrated in their communities was essentially the labeling of their neighborhoods as, say, bulldog neighborhoods or as North Daniel neighborhoods. And so this system then became a large part of what structured the lens that then interpreted their actions, right? Whether it was how they dressed when they went out, whether it was uh, their relationships to family members, to neighbors, to friends who were themselves already criminalized, um, but even forms of kind of creative expression. And so some of the stories I tell were, um, you know, in in the juvenile hall, right, where I'm volunteering in this rec room, some of the things that we get uh, uh, you know, some of the youth there to do, to pass the time or to kind of, uh, you're essentially art projects, right? So they're allowed to draw, right? They're allowed to to uh, make pictures. They're allowed to, uh, you know, what you had a number of the kids would do in juvie was uh, to essentially teach themselves calligraphy, right? And they would explain like, there's really not much more we could do here. So they would just write something like their name. They would just write it again and again, and, and would try to get so precise with it in terms of how intricate they could make their lettering, right? How how smooth they could get it. All these these forms of creativity that they developed became seen as suspicious by authority figures there, not only by the the JCOs who were you know essentially kind of guards, uh, but even um, you know counselors that they had there. Uh, uh, you know, professional personnel that worked there, administrators, learned to interpret anything they did through this lens that had already categorized them, right, as bulldogs, as surenos, as what have you. When they would, you know, create drawings or draw cartoons or something like that, uh, you know, administrators would insist that there were like hidden gang messages, right, in these drawings. In any time they wrote. Uh, things out in calligraphy. This was seen as uh, a gang tagging, right? This was somehow gang affiliated, um, and these became things that they could then still get in trouble for. So even once they transferred back to the school, you know, what some of the the youth would, ex- some of the students that I would you know pull out and would work with in small groups. Once they finished their assignment, a lot of times they would just want to keep keep writing, right? Keep kind of practicing their lettering. You know, it became this kind of popular hobby there. And you know they would get spare paper, you know blank sheets of paper, to do it on. And I would I would generally let them. But as soon as another teacher walked by or 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 one of the probation officers walked by, they would immediately cover it with you know one of their books or their textbooks or what have you. And it stood out to me. And so eventually I would ask them like, do you get in trouble for that or something? And they would say like, yeah, they think we're tagging, right? They think we're you know trying to represent you know some gang or some neighborhood or or, uh, you know, a tagging crew, or what have you, right, even if they were writing their own name, it was, it was seen as gang activity. And this, I mean, it facilitated their ongoing criminalization, but it also limited their ability to try to participate in things that could, you know, kind of celebrate their accomplishments, right? Because some of them became quite good at this, right? And they, anywhere else, they'd be recognized as as talented in a way that should be encouraged, but that was not the case here because of the status that had already been given to them. Another example of this was, I think, at the school where uh, one student was asked to write on kind of a, a bulletin board in a common space, right, right in the entryway, to write out the students at that school who had gotten the best grades, right, a kind of honor roll accomplishment, right? And so the student then wrote it out in this kind of calligraphy. And it stayed up there for think, two days, maybe. And then it was taken down. And it was replaced with someone had just typed out the names on like a word processor, printed it, and just stapled it there. And I began asking around, like, why did I get taken down? And, you know, so many of the staff, the probation officers were there. And I, I include this conversation in, in the book where... They're amazed that it was even allowed to be up in the first place, right? I don't understand uh, why we why we tell them not to tag, but we will let them tag our school. This is totally inappropriate, right? And even if it's something where it's celebrating students doing well in school, right? It's still criminalized, right? So I I, I try in this chapter to think about the extent to which the system that is institutionalized in these in in these settings right and that spills over into uh, residential spaces you know what is the extent to which it marks seemingly everything that that young people can be involved in as suspicious
0: so in the conclusion you give us some takeaways from the particular situations that you saw but also sort of some bigger takeaways so i was hoping you could give the um, listeners here some of your uh, last thoughts
1: yeah, of of course. So some of the takeaways I I, I pulled out of this, you know, and and I, I I kind of found myself at conflict a little bit writing the conclusion because I feel like so many ethnographies kind of end on kind of celebrating the resilience of of you know the the participants in their study. And you know, I, I think that's important to point out, but I also didn't want to walk away with too rosy a picture. Um, because I, I didn't feel like this is something that we should be comfortable with, right? We should we should walk away from this being troubled. Uh, we shouldn't just assume that these kids are going to be okay because a lot of them aren't. Um, and, you know, big picture-wise, I, I didn't want to give into that kind of uh, uh, cynicism entirely because I did want to highlight, uh, and, you know, I, I start the conclusion with this, is, is pointing out that as much as we tell these kids that they are criminal that's not how they see themselves right and so they see themselves outside of these institutions and like to kind of imagine the potential paths and trajectories that they may have ahead of them and to see themselves in places where uh they're not regarded as criminal right where they're uh, uh not seen as someone suspicious or as someone dangerous um and so I, I talk about, you know, like you said, big picture and, and more kind of focused implications for this. And, and uh, you know, in, in the big picture takeaway and perhaps too big picture is let's th- think about ending mass incarceration. Right. It's not too big picture, but <laughs> and, and certainly easier said than done. But everything that unfolds here is because of this this overwhelming focus on imprisonment. As this kind of default consequence for anyone that's funneled into the justice system, and uh, a justice system that's that becomes wider in its kind of a, the funnel that's being used, right? So the number of people that are being processed through this, we and specifically in communities that are most impacted by it, we have a system that brings people in that subjects them to this violence, that subjects them to this labeling, spits them back out into communities, and expect, you know, this goes on and on where more people are are sort of processed through this every year for generations. And of course, that's going to have consequences. And and so big picture is, is thinking about what are ways where we can limit the extent to which that happens, right? How can we limit the prison as a, an anticipated uh, destination for young people growing up in some of our poorest communities of color. More specific implications is in terms of thinking about policing and thinking about the management of people in those institutions is is a kind of deprioritizing gangs and gang identity as you know any kind of accurate predictor of uh, criminality or violence, right? because it's it's really in the anticipation or the attempts to, identify and manage a uh, uh, gang and culture and gang identity that we wind up producing it, right? And wind up creating systems that more or less force young people uh, into one of these groups or the other. And so I think our the most potential that we have is trying to think of systems where not only are we limiting the number of people who are are being held and confined here, but that also does not prioritize identities in a way that essentially pits people against each other. And so I think those 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 are sort of takeaways that can perhaps uh, be used to to you know, inform policy moving forward.
0: Great, thanks for chatting with us today about your book. Yeah, yeah of course. So what are you working on now? Uh,
1: <laughs> so some of the questions that I that I that I walk away with after After putting this together, and and it's you know I still find myself interested in some of the different ways where uh, these these affiliations are socialized or right or ways or contexts where they become meaningful to people who who appropriate them or who adopt them. And so there's a handful of of uh, directions I'm, I'm interested in looking at. So one is thinking about how something like the carceral social order may also not only be present in county jails, right, recognizing county jails as this kind of intermediary step between the neighborhood and the prison, but the jail is a site where you may not only have the carceral social order being institutionalized, but it also comes into perhaps conflict with or perhaps a kind of collaboration with what are some of what are sort of local identities and affiliations, right? So, you know, an example being you have, say, among Latinos, among Chicanos, this clicking up, uh, and this identification of, you know, being a northerner or a southerner uh, that becomes really kind of emphasized in the prison. But in local jails, some of those uh, uh, nearby and local gang conflicts, right, even if they're both Sureño neighborhoods, they, you know, some of those conflicts may still be kind of present and, and significant in those spaces. So um, investigating how, what what would be the relationship between Uh, these really kind of broad identities and more sort of specific local ones. I'm also interested in thinking about some of that spillover process that I cover in the book, thinking about this in in kind of a historical perspective. So thinking about what are, you know, can we actually trace what these identities started spilling over into communities? So it's kind of like building on chapter four and thinking about when Henry starts noticing this back home when he gets out of Y.A., collecting kind of similar stories and and seeing if we can place that kind of cultural consequence to you know this kind of phenomenon of mass incarceration
0: those sound like cool projects we'll stay tuned for your next work thank you so thanks again for being with us today to talk about your book oh thank you